Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Bruce Post. Bruce Post, Bruce S. Post, a 1969 Norwich graduate, has worked for several members of the Vermont and other congressional delegations. He was chief of staff for U.S. Representative John B. Anderson during Anderson's 1980 presidential campaign and also served as a researcher and speechwriter for U.S. Senator Hubert H. Humphrey in the 1972 Democratic presidential primaries. As Vermont Governor Richard Snelling's Director of Planning and Research, Bruce developed a comprehensive perspective on multiple issues facing Vermont. He now writes and lectures on Vermont's environmental history. He's the creator of the Mountain Manifesto, http colon backslash backslash mountainmanifesto.org, and his article, The Road to Paradise Lost, The Defeat of the Green Mountain Parkway, appeared in the Bennington's Museum's Walloom Sack Review. His two-part series, History of Vermont Environmentalism, was published in the review's Spring and Autumn 2017 editions. He also wrote an environmental prob- uh, He also wrote on environmental problems in the former Soviet Union for the Johns Hopkins University's SAIS Review, and the New York Times published his letter on the effects of oil extraction in Western North Dakota. Bruce served on the Vermont State Board of Libraries for 11 years, including nine years as chair. He was also on the board of the Rokeby Museum on the Green Mountains Club's History and Archives Committee. So first off, thank you again for your work in the world, and thank you for being on the program. Well, it's, I'm, I'm very happy to be here, Derek, uh, and I love the work you do and the example you show a lot of us. So thanks for asking me to come back. Well, thanks so much for saying that. And um, I really enjoyed our first conversation, which was about um, how Vermont had the opportunity in the 1930s to get two national parks and and failed to do so or rejected them. And so sort of continuing on from that conversation, um, what are some of the lessons learned from that and how did that affect Vermont? And what are the ramifications today? Well, um, you know, that's interesting. I've said if, uh, you know, Harvard Business School will have these cases about successful corporations and what made them successful, unsuccessful corporations, what made them unsuccessful. Uh, if we had a school of environmental history, we might study uh, the consequences of rejecting a national park or two. And, and that's the case in Vermont. Uh, you know, during that debate in the, the mid 30s, the landscape architect, uh, Laurie Davidson Cox, who designed the National Park Road and the National Park, um, was very concerned that Vermont would not uh, go for a national park because of its uh, conservative nature. And this was his prophecy, his warning to the people of Vermont just before the vote. He said, the Green Mountains present a wilderness area of largely unspoiled beauty, not surpassed elsewhere in the East. To permit this area to follow the history of most of our other Eastern wildernesses is little short of criminal. Without the parkway, this despoiling of the Vermont wilderness is inevitable and only a matter of time and probably a rather short time at that. The area is largely privately owned and is subject to taxation and development. It only awaits a market and the market is already in sight. The tremendous urban civilization at the very doors of Vermont makes the exploitation of the Green Mountains an assured fact if the area remains under private ownership. And that was Laurie Cox's warning. He tried to point a better way, uh, but he lived long enough. I think he died in uh, 86 or somewhere around there, or maybe 
68-69, I get a little confused, but he lived long enough uh, to see that prediction come through because in the post-World uh, War II period, in the early 1950s, uh, all over uh, the world, particularly in the United States and also in Vermont, uh, our lands, the land was subject to enormous pressures one historian, uh, environmental historian in Switzerland called it the 50s syndrome, uh, cheap energy, abundant and cheap oil, uh, growing automobiles put tremendous pressure uh, on areas which were now being uh, reached by, in this case, a new interstate highway system. Somebody else called it the great acceleration. Uh, I call it pedal to the metal as we, uh, uh, we use the energy coming out of the war, the new industrialization to really expand the footprint of human beings uh, throughout the world, throughout our continent and throughout Vermont. Um, and that's what Vermont faced uh, in the mid 1950s and the uh, late 1950s. Matter of fact, I think the first exit on our uh, Interstate 91, just north of Massachusetts, happened in, uh, uh, was in 1959. I remember seeing, uh, I've seen films of the, the big celebration. People thought that this was salvation. They had a high school marching band, politicians. It was filmed live. Uh, people thought this was a wonderful thing. But uh, like anything else, uh, it's a two-edged sword. And that's what I want to deal with today is uh, the threats uh, to Vermont's environment that were presented to us uh, in the late 1950s and how what we thought would be wonderful, and it was in many cases, also turned uh, out to have tremendous uh, disadvantages. And uh, that's what I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, today. Um, so there you go. That's our start. Well, I mean, that sounds great. And um, why don't you go ahead and, and start talking about that then? Well, you know, um, it's, it's interesting because you'll, you'll know this. We were beginning to have an environmental consciousness in this country. I don't think it was ever great. But, uh, you know, Aldo Leopold's uh, Sand County Almanac was... Uh, published in the late 1940s, I think published after his very unfortunate death, fighting a little brush fire near his uh, second home in Wisconsin. And then uh, we got Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was published and had a tremendous audience throughout the United States and in parts of the world. Uh, another guy that um, had an effect uh, was Wallace Stegner, who you may be familiar with his work. He ran the writing program at Stanford University, taught Wendell Berry and Edward Abbey, Terry Tempest Williams. He also had a, uh, a summer home in Vermont here and spent a lot of time in Vermont. He wrote a really interesting article called One Fourth of a Nation, Public Lands and Itching Fingers. And he was concerned about the Eisenhower administration turning, turning over offshore oil leases to corporations and was also concerned that there would be threats to our uh, public lands throughout the United States. So this was this great tsunami 
that was on the uh, borders of Vermont when the interstate highway uh, came up here in 1959. And during that time, it's interesting. Wait, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, I just want to point out that uh, 1964 was the, the, the Wilderness Act, and that could never be passed today. So even though that's post-1950s, that's still something that uh, was was tremendously helpful in many ways and could never happen today. And and when we get into our, our Vermont's environmental laws, I'll uh, I'll I'll play you a sound clip. I have some sound clips I can share with you uh, where one of our top environmental advocates, a professor named Hub Vogelman. Uh, said he didn't think that many of the laws we passed in the 60s and the 70s uh, could be passed today. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I use the term that once the interstates came to Vermont, Vermont became a salt lick uh, for all sorts of crazy ideas. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, I'm sure you're familiar with the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, they wanted to build a missile control facility on top of our highest mountain, because of course the Russians were to be feared and they had missiles that were gonna be set up down near Burlington, but the missile control facility itself was at the top of our highest peak. And the University of Vermont had already approved cutting a road up to Mount Mansfield, the summit of which is 4,393 feet. There was a ski entrepreneur down in Southern Vermont in Mount Snow. He petitioned in 1961, he petitioned the Atomic Energy Committee to detonate a nuclear device uh, on Mount Snow to deepen the uh, uh, cavity in the mountain uh, or the dimple in the mountain so he could have greater, a greater um, expert ski slope there. Uh, it didn't become uh, known in Vermont until 1963. Um, Weyerhaeuser, I'm sure you're familiar with Weyerhaeuser out there in the West. Well, they owned uh, a big lumber operation on state land at Jay Peak, our highest mountain in right on the Canadian border. And they uh, blew off the top of the mountain in 1968 to... Uh, put in a tram house so they could run a cable car up to the top of the summit. Uh, and it, it looks like the gash today, even, uh, even now. Uh, the, the, library, uh, the Army Corps also wanted to dam up a very precious bog in Northeast uh, Vermont called Victory Bog. And they also wanted to dredge our major lake, Lake Champlain, so we could have ocean going ships. So there were all sorts of ideas that were floating around. And at this time, Vermont did not have any real environmental organizations. We got our first in 63, the Vermont Natural Resources Council, which was then a real scrappy group. But we had loose coalitions of people uh, in different parts of the state that came together out of a basic concern for the integrity of Vermont's environment and the health uh, of its mountains, uh, particularly its mountains, because we are largely uh, a mountainous state. And uh, I picked about four subjects to uh, go over with you today. Uh, one is this bog up in the Northeast Kingdom, a victory bog. Um, 
the fight to save Campbell's Hump, Campbell's Hump of the of the five five peaks we have in Vermont that are over four thousand feet. I know that sounds small to you folks out there with the Wests and the Cascades and the Sierras, but uh, we have four five peaks over four thousand feet, and Camel's Hump is the only one that hasn't been subject to uh, ski development. And I'll tell the story about fighting to save that. Uh, then there was a group that came together called the Green Mountains Profile Committee that wanted to have a wilderness strip or a wild strip, the entire length of the Green Mountain chain, right along the summits and down some of the flanks, all the way up to Canada. And finally, the really crowning touch of uh, this environmental movement was um, uh, Act 250, our land use law, which earned us a lot of cred uh, nationally in the environmental community. And uh, with, with your permission, I'll go over all four of those things. But you know, I raised uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and, and this period of great progress here in Vermont, uh, I call our, in, our environmental spring, Vermont's environmental spring. And uh, you're probably familiar with the uh, political freedom spring movements that happened in Czechoslovakia, in Egypt, uh, you know, in Tunisia, even in Ukraine. Uh, these great movements, popular movements to bring about progress. Well, this was, this was a, a, a popular movement in Vermont by some people who love Vermont to uh, update our environmental values and preserve some very important places. Yeah. So um, do you want to go uh, chronologically or geographically with this? Well, I'll, I'll take it in that order, but I, I've got a clip I want to play you. Uh, this is uh, Hub Vogelman. Uh, he was a botanist at the University of Vermont. He came here in the 1950s. And Hub Vogelman uh, became known for his groundbreaking work on acid rain and on camel's hump. And, and Hub found that when he got here, Vermonters knew a lot about forests and they knew a lot about agricultural land, but they knew very little about the, the mountains. And, and this is the situation Hub describes at that time in the uh, early 60s. It was mostly a concern of the recreation development, the ski areas and that, which were, well, they were, all our high mountains were going. I mean, you know, it was, uh, we lost Jay Peak, we lost, uh, you know, the Smuggler's Notch area, we lost some of that lands, we lost Stratton Mountain was going on and, and uh, I can, there's a bunch of them. And uh, so that was the real threat. So, um... That's the situation Vogelman was describing. And, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I, we talked about the 1930s during my last uh, uh, appearance with you. And um, FDR had come to Vermont in August of 1936 uh, to inspect some uh, civilian conservation corps dams and to uh, follow up on a concern he had about flood control. And one of FDR's great um, emphases uh, was he believed in reforestation and definitely Vermont was in need of it. But when he was at that flood control conference and he got briefed by our state forester, uh, he held a news conference on the uh, 
his train. And he was concerned about Vermont at the time that it was doing too much recreational development and it was exposing too much of our high elevations to uh, tree cutting, open slopes, which could lead to flooding. And so here we are, Hub Vogelman talking about the situ situation in the 1960s and nothing had really changed. Uh, and the ski industry was a big threat uh, to the state of Vermont. People don't realize what a big business it is today. Uh, but the first big fight I think was over this bog up in the Northeast Kingdom. The Northeast Kingdom is uh, comprised of our three poorest counties. People say it's Vermont as it used to be. Vermont wasn't a rich state uh, and it hasn't, uh, doesn't have a lot of economic opportunity or a large population. Uh, but various times in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and then in the early 60s, the Army Corps of Engineers wanted to build a dam in this magnificent Victory Bog. It was a legacy project left over from Roosevelt's plan to have a large federal flood control project in the Connecticut River Valley involving Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, and, and uh, uh, Connecticut, New Hampshire. And uh, so they resurrected this idea of a bog and it shocked people. It shocked people. And there was a, a fella at, in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, up in the Northeast Kingdom, who began a, uh, a popular movement to fight building Victory Bog. And it's interesting, it had tremendous support. Our Governor Aiken, who was pretty well known throughout the country, was in favor of it. Uh, the Democratic governor in uh, the 1960s, this first Democrat elected since the Civil War, he was in favor of it but there were plenty of people who were against it. And uh, that became sort of our first big fight and, and it became successful. And, and uh, folks began to feel that there was some hope in being able to save a lot of these precious resources uh, we seem to take for granted here in Vermont. And um, so that was the, uh, the fight over Victory Bog. Another one that started is the fight to save, as I said, uh, Camel's Hump. Now, Camel's Hump, if you came to Vermont, Derek, uh, and drove between Montpelier, our state capital, and Burlington, our largest city, you'd go right by Camel's Hump on the interstate. It's about equidistant from those two uh, uh, communities. And it's probably the most visible mountain in Vermont as a result because so much traffic goes by it in the course of the day. And you can see it from uh, so much of uh, Eastern Vermont and uh, so much of the Western Vermont and the populous uh, Champlain Valley. Well, I was a student in college at the time in the, in the 1960s. And quite frankly, I didn't know anything about Vermont's environment. I was worried in my, about my studies, but I did have one, uh, officer, I went to a military college, and he said to me that the mafia had the idea of developing Camel's Hump into a ski area. And our, our Forest and Parks Board rejected it. And back around 1963, a quiet, shy man uh, named Bob Spear, who actually founded the Green Mountain Audubon Society, uh, said we should turn Camel's Hump 
uh, into a park, a state park or perhaps a national park. And the Save Camels Hump movement started. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I have an ad that was in Vermont Life magazine and it showed Camels Hump. And the headline was, we made a promise to this mountain. And that promise should be that the only change it should see are the four seasons, you know, fall, winter, spring, and summer. And that ad was taken out by the Vermont Development Department, who's encouraging people to come to Vermont, having businesses set up in Vermont, but they identified Camel's Hump as an icon. And it was a tough fight. It was a tough fight. Not everyone agreed. We had a lot of resistance from our state forester at the time, a guy named Perry Merrill. And I'm sure you know, uh, the National Forest Service uh, uh, is not necessarily the best steward of forest lands throughout the country and the West and Alaska. Uh, and I, I, I think some foresters, and it's not all, but they're like uh, a hammer, to a hammer, everything's a nail. Uh, to Perry Merrill, he was concerned about cutting trees and building ski areas. So he never embraced the camel's hump idea, but people moved forward. And eventually camel's hump was turned into a state park. Uh, Governor Dean Davis, a Republican elected in 68, signed the legislation to protect camel's hump. But even today, camel's hump is still under threats because uh, the State Forestry Service wants to do some cutting, and that's part of a big fight right now. Um, a third idea was this Green Mountains Profile Committee. And Hub Vogelman, that botanist, was part of it. Bob Spear, the guy who set up the Green Mountain Audubon Society, an orthodontist, and then a really dynamic woman, uh, a really visionary woman named Shirley Strong, who came from a small community uh, called Craftsbury Common. And she was the first woman president of the Green Mountain Club, our hiking club. And they banded together to push to get, push for uh, this Green Mountain wildland strip along the summits uh, of our Green Mountain, Central Green Mountain chain. They did not want to see communication towers put up. They did not want to see uh, an expansion of ski areas. Uh, it was quite frankly, a radical idea, but uh, it gained them followers in the legislature. Uh, and it's unfortunate in some ways, uh, their vision never came to fruition. But one thing came that came out of their uh, lobbying and their uh, visiting with people throughout the state is that we set a limit of about 2,500 feet uh, and beyond that, we would try to restrict development and protect the headwaters of our streams, uh, prote uh, protect against buildings, development, uh, expansion of ski areas. And uh, we call that the 2,500 foot rule. And that's the biggest legacy uh, of this Green Mountain Profiles Committee. And the last thing I want to talk about uh, is our land, we call it our landmark. Uh, Land Use Act, uh, Act 250. Um, and Act 250 came into being uh, because of Dean Davis, this governor who was elected 
1968. An interesting guy, he was a businessman. He ran the biggest insurance company in Vermont. Um, he was a native of Vermont. People thought of him as conservative, but he wasn't really. But I remember going to one of his campaign speeches in 1968 when I was a student. I fell asleep. He was pretty boring as a speaker. And the interesting thing about the 1968 uh, campaign, environmental issues never came up in the gubernatorial race. Uh, but within about six months, Dean Davis got religion. And, and the reason he did was, uh, remember I told you ski area development was pretty fierce in this state, particularly in Southern Vermont. And it just wasn't ski area development. It was second home developments going on largely unregulated, built on steep slopes, without zoning, without septic rules. Uh, there were salesmen uh, who were hired to make cold calls to people down country in places like Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, New York, to get people to buy a piece of Vermont. And uh, the target zone was uh, the southeastern county called Wyndham County. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Bill Schmidt there, a real visionary fellow. He had been a minister, uh, came to Vermont as a minister in 61. One of the first things he did was preside over an opening of uh, Exit 4 on, the, uh, on Interstate 91. But he then became the central planner for the first regional planning uh, commission in Vermont, the Wyndham County Regional Planning Commission. And he invited Dean Davis uh, to come down to Brattleboro, which is in southeastern Vermont, the largest city, have, have breakfast with the uh, board of the uh, planning commission and the staff. And they were going to talk for about 45 minutes. And they started talking about what was going on in southern Vermont. And they, they stayed, Dean Davis stayed for two hours. And he came back twice, twice within a month. And he toured those hills and he saw the utter devastation that was being caused by this rampant development. And he did something about it. He, was, he had proposed a real strong suit of environmental laws dealing with junkyards, trailer parks, uh, high altitude streams, water quality. Vermont's water quality was terrible. And this is before the Clean Water Act. And based on what he saw down in the Wyndham County area, Davis may set up this commission to study land use. And it worked for a year. And finally, in 1970, in May, uh, Dean Davis came back with a proposal for this uh, Act 250 land development law. And um, it wasn't an easy lift. A lot of people think, oh, it just moves through the legislature like a hot knife through butter. That's not true. Dean Davis was upset with the lack of progress made in the legislature, and he threatened to hold the legislature in session to not let them go home until they passed this law, which they eventually did in late March 1970. And it was the passage of this law. Derek, that I think gave Vermont uh, 
the reputation it has today as a sort of a environmental paragon uh, that people should follow, that Vermont is so special, and it is special, and Vermont does such a wonderful job of protecting its environment uh, that it should be uh, an example uh, to the nation. And um, there was only one problem. Act, uh, Act 250 was passed in 1970, and uh, what happened after that was, uh, I say it was crippled, coming right out of the gate because Act 250 called for something. And I, I don't know if you have, they have this in Oregon, which you get to quite a bit, uh, but it was supposed to have a statewide land use plan to make an environmental or an ecological assessment of the different regions of the state and to determine where development should go and what kind of development was to be permitted uh, in certain parts of the state. Well, you know, that gave way to all sorts of claims of socialism, communism. Now, this is a 68, 69-year-old uh, Republican who's making this, but he loved our state. But he, he left office after two terms, and they had still not uh, passed the statewide land use plan. You know, it's, it's interesting, too. The um, the Democratic minority leader at the time was a guy who succeeded Dean Davis as governor, a guy named Tom Salmon. He uh, was a big developer's attorney, but even he had to warn the Democrats. It's interesting, you know, that the Democrats might have been dragging their shoes to protect the environment. He said, you got to vote for this Act 250. We don't want to be blamed for its failure. So Act 250 passed, but Tom Salmon, when he became governor, never was able to get that statewide land use plan through. And I think that we have um, experienced uh, retrenchment uh, ever since. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, you know, these, these political uh, spring movements, the, uh, you know, the Tunisian spring, the Czechoslovakia spring, uh, Poland spring, um, uh, Egypt's spring, this sort of flourishing of a nascent democracy, uh, largely were all stamped out uh, in Czechoslovakia in, in 68. The Prague Spring uh, ended when Russian tanks, Soviet tanks, then uh, rolled right in and, and put it down. And, and I think what happened here in Vermont is enough of these shoots were able to establish a root system that we have uh, environmental laws today, and they're not bad, but I don't think they do everything they're advertised to do. Uh, fortunately, we had an active federal presence, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, you know, in which I'm afraid the Supreme Court now will try to weaken. Uh, but Vermont was then able to make some progress. But I believe ever since those days, um, in the early 70s, after which Vermont had made this tremendous progress, we began a series of retrenchments and um, we're living with today. I think the nature of public commitment to the environment has changed. And, and as we'll discuss maybe in the remainder of, of our discussion today, uh, 
I think the environmental organizations that grew uh, to maturity over the last uh, 50 years themselves have been compromised and um, uh, have been enabled that retrenchment. And I think it's very sad. I better take a breath. I've been talking a long time. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that brings us back to, I know that this isn't your thing, but it's, it is kind of my thing, that this brings us back to, um, you know, what I said about the 1964 wilderness. Um, it, it should, there's no way that could happen today in terms of retrenchment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying that even though Richard Nixon was not an environmentalist, um, he was in many ways the best environmental president in terms of, you know, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, NEPA, NUFMA, um, Endangered Species Act. Um, <clears throat> for all, they have been faced the same retrenchment. Um, and this is something that I have, uh, you know, Bright Green Lies, the subtitle is something to the effect of, you know, how the environmental movement went astray and, you know, how we can get it back. That one of the things I'm fond of saying is that at one point, uh, at least some environmentalism was about protecting wild places and wild beings as opposed to uh, simply fueling the destruction. It's become really a lobbying arm for the solar and wind industries. Well, well, let me let me play a few clips here and then we can talk about it. First of all, uh, based on what you said about Nixon uh, and the Wilderness Act, this is that Hub Vogelman describing um, what happened under Dean Davis, a Republican. Um, listen to this. Act 250 came into being in that, in that period. And again, um, you couldn't do Act 250 today, not the way it was done then. And the, the lobbies, the lobbyists hadn't gotten to get gotten their act together. And, and there it is, the lobbyists hadn't gotten their act together. And they have ever since. But the, the great challenge we have today, we've come through a period of, I think, the biggest environmental battle uh, since those days uh, in the late 70s, early 70s, has been generated by um, the concern about climate change and the, um, I think the cop, I'm trying to, I'm, how the major environmental groups have been compromised by uh, the, what I call the climate change dodge. And I'm not denying climate change doesn't exist, but the way environmental organizations have involved themselves in advocating to deal with climate change has left much of our lands in Vermont exposed to massive solar development and to the big battle over ridgetop wind. You know, we have a, uh, a climate council here in Vermont. It was, it was created by the legislature. They're supposed to set goals and, and, and programs to comply with certain uh, renewable energy standards uh, over time. And that if we don't meet those standards that anyone could sue the state. So this is a recording I made of the first meeting of the climate council. This is the lead uh, member for representing the mainstream 
establishment environmental groups. And I want you to listen carefully uh, to this. I think it's a, probably one of the biggest economic development opportunities the state have ever, ever seen. So if we you know, can turn this tremendous job creating opportunity, centering equity along the way, I think we have a lot of um, opportunities before us. So, and just for full transparency, I think it's a big economic development opportunity in part because my husband has been uh, working at Sun Commons since its inception in 2012. Now, here's, here's the problem I have. Well, I have two problems with that. Um, first of all, we get apocalyptic language about what's going to happen to Vermont under climate change. We'll lose our maple syrup business. We won't have the ski business, although I think the ski business is a sideline now for massive real estate sprawl uh, in our upper elevations. But uh, we will have floods, we will have droughts, we will have invasive species, and you've heard it, and some of it is very true. But then at the same time, uh, this individual is saying, holy cow, happy days are here again. We are going to have the most economic growth in the history of Vermont. Climate change is going to be good for business. And the second thing I, I'm troubled by that clip is uh, she mentions that her husband works for a solar developer. There's nothing wrong with that. But now here's a person making decisions on a climate council who's got an economic uh, interest uh, in how the climate plan turns out. And that was a problem with our uh, climate council is a lot of insiders from what we call the Burlington Montpelier bubble, uh, representing uh, developers, representing uh, uh, energy consultants. And one of the uh, most pivotal members on it was the uh, director of, of uh, strategic planning for our largest electric utility, which is division of a Canadian uh, a mega national corporate uh, corporation, and 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 it's like putting the uh, fox in the hen house to uh, keep order. And I have great difficulty with um, that kind of cronyism that exists on our our climate council. Now, another thing I talked about, uh, Derek, was the big wind battle, and and here is a recording of. One of the big, I call him a wintrepreneur who wants to build wind turbines in Vermont. He's from Vermont. He's heavily embedded in the Democratic Party organization in this state, which controls the state politically. And uh, here's what he said at a meeting when he was quizzed about how much wind we would need in Vermont. In Vermont, our mountains are basically natural towers to get the wind turbines up high where the wind blows. My question is, how many miles of ridgeline is it going to take to reach your 40% capacity? I don't think you want to hear my answer. <laughs> yes, I, I'd like everybody to hear right? the answer. I'll tell you, it's 200 miles of ridgeline that needs to be developed. But we have a lot of ridgelines in Vermont. And you hear that a lot, Derek. We have a lot of ridgelines in Vermont. We're not going to build them on every ridgeline. But you know, when you destroy ecosystem after ecosystem at high altitude levels, uh, it adds up over time. 
And Vermont's a relatively small state. It's not much more than 200 miles from the Massachusetts border to the Canadian border in the north. I think it's only 90 miles wide at its widest point. And this guy's calling for 200 miles of, of ridgetop wind, uh, which I think is a sacrilege. But uh, this has been pushed, uh, particularly by some of the environmental groups, as if you don't support this, uh, you're a denier. I, I'd hate to say it, but our public interest research group is perhaps become a trade association for the renewable energy industry. They have a spinoff that became this Sun Common uh, Solar Company. Uh, the president's on their board. Uh, they show pictures of blown up mountaintops in West Virginia and says, uh, we have a responsibility not to have this happen in West Virginia. And so their, their prescription for saving West Virginia is to do to Vermont what the coal industry did to West Virginia and Kentucky with mountaintop removal. And um, that's why I got re-engaged with the environmental movement in this state uh, back in the, the mid uh, 2000 period, because uh, I just, you know, being an environmental historian, I couldn't sit back and watch what's going on in the mountains without getting involved. So I got involved with a, a friend of mine I used to know from government who was very active in trying to beat back a big wind project. They failed up in Lowell uh, Mountain, Vermont. Uh, but, and it's one reason why um, I was motivated to write uh, the Mountain Manifesto, which you talked about, uh, which was uh, uh, to help people understand what was at stake if we had this kind of, of massive uh, wind development in Vermont. And um, um, so that's how, you know, that's how I got engaged. And, and I find what's happening today is in a way history's repeating itself. Remember I said Vermont had made its greatest progress in environmental protection in the 60s and the 70s when we didn't have large established bureaucratic environmental organizations. Uh, the Vermont Natural Resources Council uh, was a very uh, cutting edge group. Matter of fact, its executive director attacked the uh, rationale for capitalism and uh, um, did a lot. And, and then you had like the Bob Spears of the Green Mountain Audubon Society and Shirley Strong and the academics like Hub Vogelman who came together to make this progress. Well, today, these established environmental groups, I think sometimes they're very comfortable uh, in the jobs that they have and they have to feed the bees. So they have to go out and find money and they find money that I think compromises their operation. Uh, you know, that woman who made that comment about uh, climate change being the greatest economic opportunity in the history of Vermont is not a bad person. I I've, I've only seen her once or twice. I don't think she's an evil person. I think he, she's a serious person. And there are a lot of serious people on our client, climate council, but they should not be taken seriously because for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they have 
compromise basic environmental values. Uh, they don't deserve our attention. They deserve our resistance, resistance radio. And that's, the, that's what I've been involved in doing here with some really wonderful people, some of you who know, uh, know, you know, Annette Smith, Vermonters for Clean Environment. Annette, you know, lives off the grid. Uh, I don't know how she does it, but she motivates people all over the state. And when people run into trouble and they can't find help from the state government or they can't find help from environmental organizations, they go to Annette. She's like that Shirley Strong was. Uh, we have a group called Standing Trees Vermont that's fighting a big uh, forestry project in uh, uh, the national forest here in Vermont. And uh, um, I think Michael Kellett, uh, I think you, you know him and you like him. He wrote an article about this group and saying Vermont, the, the national forest in Vermont should be converted into a national park. Well, this group is relatively fledgling. It's a couple of years old, but it's working at making things happen. Uh, Northeast Wilderness Trust, Tom Butler, who you might know, he's a friend of George Werthner's. Uh, it's an organization he's been involved with that's trying to save uh, sections of land uh, throughout New England uh, and Northeast United States, uh, one property at a time. So that's, that's basically where we are. And um, uh, I know we're probably coming you know, towards an end soon. And um, uh, we have some more things to talk about, but if you've got some questions you'd like to ask me, go right ahead. Well, I, <clears throat> one of the things I, I wanna return to that person saying it's only 200 miles of ridge line or it's 200 miles of ridge line, but there's plenty of ridges. And two things about that. One is that um, whenever they talk like this, how would they feel if they were space aliens who were saying, you know, we're only going to, to destroy 7 million homes and your home is one of them. And there's, there's never any acknowledgement that wherever they're going to destroy, somebody already lives there. And they, that doesn't seem to matter. And the other thing is that they, the world has not been destroyed or the world is not really being killed by one nuclear blast. It has been killed tree by tree, acre by acre, square mile by square mile. And it is, I've been hearing this for my entire, ever since I was a baby activist, I was hearing, oh, there needs to be balance between environmentalists and the economy. And you need to just compromise and go ahead and give them this 20 acres and this 10,000 acres and this 20,000 acres. And it goes back to what David Brower said about every environmental victory is temporary and every loss is permanent, that it's not, I, I'm just, just interrupt me whenever you want, take, take this whatever direction you want. It just, it just well, infuriates me what that person said. Well, it's like the sea coming, you know, it keeps coming. It keeps coming. It keeps coming. And, and you can't rest. Uh, you know, Wallace Stegner wrote, this is work. This is work. And we have to, to work at this. Um, and you now there's, I hate this practice that happened at Lowell Mountain. It's happened other places. What they say is you allow us to destroy this property. They don't say destroy, but you allow us to develop this and we'll protect 
150 acres elsewhere, okay, what a mitigation or whatever they call it. And it finally came to me, I, I'd have to be very careful doing it if once I get back on the speaking circuit to get up there and I have a little, little hatchet I have. And um, okay, you've heard this. Uh, we'll protect this. We'll, we'll just, you know, you let us develop this, but we'll protect that. So I'm going to say, why doesn't somebody come up from the audience and, and come on up and put your right hand down here on the podium. And um, I promise you this, if you allow me to cut off your right hand, I will save every other right hand in the audience. Well, what do you think that person's answer would be? No way, Jose. And, and this is this kind of a dodge they make all the time. And the question of balance, we haven't been in balance since we began the Industrial Revolution. As a matter of fact, the, uh, that Swiss environmental historian that uh, coined the term the 50 syndrome says, what's happened since the post-World War II uh, era has been more destructive than anything uh, preceding it through the period of the early industrial revolution. And it accelerates, it accelerates. And that's why um, people have to begin to say no. And yes, it's probably a difficult road. You know, I, you may have heard the story about this guy who was uh, wandering a, a, a seashore and thousands of starfish had washed up on the shore. And there was this fellow there picking up one starfish at a time and throwing it back, throwing it, the next one back, throwing the next one back. And the guy who came upon this said, well, that's sort of silly. You'll never be able to save. It's not going to make any difference to all these thousands of starfish. And he said, it will make a difference to the one I just tossed back in. So ecosystem by ecosystem, I think we have to um, wage our resistance. Wage our resistance. And the first thing is public education. And, you know, on the wind movement, there was a poll done. Uh, by Vermont Public Radio and a polling institute at Castleton College in Vermont, Castleton State College. And they found that the more people learned about ridgetop wind, the less supportive they were. And that's one reason I and some others, Annette Smith, uh, helped me get this thing published, I published the Mountain Manifesto, both online and a, a little newspaper import to try to galvanize public opinion. Uh, I don't rest easy, assuming that the, the battle has been won because again, like that greedy sea, it wants to keep eating away at the shore. I'm sure these folks will be back uh, and um, we all have to play our role, our little band, has to play our role in, in resisting. Um, well, that would be a wonderful place to end this interview. Do you have anything else you want to say? This is this is all great. Thank you. Well, one thing I want to thank. Well, I, if if I got a minute, I'd like to read. It's about eight to twelve lines. The Mountain Manifesto. That's the root of my bigger document. And if, with your permission, I'll do so. Yeah, let's do that. And it said. 
The ecological integrity of the Green Mountains is essential to the health of Vermont's lands, its air, and its waters, and to all the life, human and otherwise, that dwells on and in them. For Eon, these mountains have been shaped and transformed by the long, slow evolutionary forces of geology, ice, wind, and water. Now, we are the greatest threat to Vermont's mountains and have been since the early days of colonial settlement. And as the artifacts of destruction have become more sophisticated, powerful, and readily deployable, humankind can, with ease and within a few months, milliseconds on the geological clock, destroy what took millennia, millennia to create. Now is the time to stop this madness. And, and Derek, I want to thank you uh, for helping a lot of us in this country and other countries to take our stand against this madness. And I'll just close with this one sentence quote from Rachel Lawrence. Uh, it reminds me of you. She wrote to her close friend, uh, Dorothy, I think her name was, knowing what I do know, there would be no future peace for me if I kept silent. So thanks, Derek, for not being silent. I well, know it's not, e it's not easy. And thanks for me inviting me on so I don't have to be silent either. And I really, really appreciate uh, your leadership and inspiration uh, in this area and the opportunity to speak with you uh, here on your show. Well, thank you for saying all that. And let's both thank everybody who is out there fighting for every scrap of land and every, every place that uh, a, wild, a wild one can live. And uh, thank you so much for being on the program, Bruce. And uh, thank you for your years of friendship too. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Bruce Post. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>